Hello everyone, this is Ed. I uh, just wanted to let you know that this episode of Shot Reverse Shot has some audio issues. Uh, there's a little bit of background fuzz every time that I talk, which was, uh, I think, caused by a problem with my microphone. Um, I've tried to reduce it as much as possible, but uh, it's still there is still some fuzziness, and I just wanted to let you all know. So, uh, it's, Otherwise, it's a great episode. Um, please enjoy it, but bear in mind there is some weird uh, background noise stuff going on. Okay, enjoy the show. Uh, hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Um, this week, uh, myself and Ed are answering a question, really. Um, what is that question, Ed? Uh, it's the question of, is it possible to know too much about a movie? Uh, and in, not in terms of, you know, trivia and, you know, things like that, but in terms of the things that went into how it was made and whether or not knowing too much about like, the production details of a film uh, can influence the opinion of it. This was largely inspired by the fact that um, uh, I saw that you had seen uh, Escape from Tomorrow mm. uh, recently, which is a film for anyone who's unfamiliar it's a a film which was a, a kind of a existential horror film, which was shot clandestinely on the uh, in Disneyland or Disney World, or both really, because they they shot it in multiple parks to avoid being thrown out and uh, found to be making a film. Uh, and it's not a terrible film, but it is a film that is more interesting because of how it was made than because of the film itself. But it's also the sort of film where when it was getting reviewed, all anyone could talk about was about how it was made. Mm. And I think that, that it, you enter into a weird uh, area there where a film can, just because of the, the nature of the film itself, you cannot really consider it without talking about how it came into being. That is 100% correct. Uh, I first heard about that film when um, it had shown at Sundance. And I think it had shown at Sundance under some secrecy. Um, to avoid any kind of like legal action from a Disney company who inexplicably have not taken any legal action against uh, this film. Um, I suppose it, you know, they kind of get around it, but anyway, um, and I instantly thought I've got to see that. And it's because of how it was made. It, it wasn't because I thought, oh, wow, well, I want to see a film where a man goes on holiday with his family, has a mental breakdown, kind of like mildly paedophilic. I want to see a film that's surreptitiously shot in Disneyland. Yeah, and there was also, like you say, there was a big question about whether or not it would actually ever see release because it played at Sundance and the story had already gotten out that the, these guys had gone in and you know details came out about how they sometimes would have to shoot during like six minute windows to make sure the right the, the lighting was right from shot to shot because obviously they were filming it sort of secretly and having to steal shots wherever they could. And then they shot it at multiple parks because sometimes they'd be going in like three or four days and someone would like look at them and wonder why they're going there all the time and going on the same rides. And so there were all these details about, you know, this, this, this production kind of coming through. And then there was that sense of, well, Disney can't let this happen because it's been shot basically illegally on their property. And mm. so there was a sense for a really long time that it would never see the light of day and it would only ever like have that one screening at Sundance. And that'd be all anyone would see. And so, like when it came out, I think that there was a, an idea was floated at one point that 
the reason it was released was because you know uh, Disney just realised that there was no kind of harm to them in letting it get out, and if they restricted it, I think that would add to its kind of underdog allure. Mm. If the kind of secondary question to that is that um, if we get past the idea that we wanted, you know, we saw the film and we were drawn to it uh, because of the way it was made, um, does that just make it a gimmick? I think it definitely does in the case of Escape from Tomorrow, because, you know, for whatever the film's kind of, uh, its other merits, which, you know, there are many, you know, it's a film that looks really nice and it has a really good sense of mood and it does some interesting things in terms of sort of digital manipulation of the images to create sort of moments of of shock. Uh, the main thing of it, like, even if you didn't know that it had been shot on Disneyland beforehand, I think if you were watching it, that would be all you could think of. You'd be watching it thinking, well, this is Disney. This is actually Disney. This isn't a fake theme park that mm. they've, like, built specially for this film. This is actually the real Disneyland. And how did this happen? And I think once you realise it's actually at this place, that's all you can think of. Is like, you can, certainly for me, like, I was there thinking, how, you know, were they just kind of standing around? How were they having this fight in the middle of all these people? You know, was the cameraman standing a really long way away where they mic'd up and you just start to consider the, the impressive kind of production details about it and I think that defines the film in a lot, a lot of ways mm. There was something that bugged me about the film which was some really awful green screen use Oh I noticed that as well, fucking terrible mm. And by extension this leads us into the next point, is that something that uh, people who are, who are kind of really familiar uh, with film and filmmaking techniques uh, would notice and jog them out of watching the film um, rather than someone who perhaps isn't as au fait with those things would just think, oh, that might that looks a bit odd, but I'm not thinking about it too much. Whereas instantly I was like, that's green screen, that's awful. Yeah, I think familiarity with filmmaking techniques really highlights it because the rest of it is shot so naturalistically. And obviously you're, you're then thinking, this has been shot in Disneyland and I can see that they are real kind of park goers walking around and so when it's suddenly you suddenly realize that the depth of field is all wrong and the shadows look weird mm. uh, then you can't help but look at it and think that that looks dreadful that's clearly like green screen because they couldn't film the guy picking up his son and sticking his head into a bin uh, to vomit you know that would just look wrong entirely if they tried to do it sort of for real and you know that's the the natural problem with the way the film was made is that some of the stuff they wanted to do they just physically couldn't yeah yeah but that doesn't mean that it doesn't look any worse than it actually looks um yeah um it's not really new is it that uh something like a gimmick to call it that has been used to make perhaps draw people in uh to seeing a film um, kind of one of the earlier ones I'm thinking about, and I'm not talking about gimmicks in a kind of William Castle promotional sense. I'm talking about a filmmaking gimmick, more along the lines of Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, uh, mm. a film which is shot in I think seven or eight is it long takes or is it more than that? I, I think it's about nine because yeah. each one's about nine or ten minutes long, and the film's only like eighty five or something. Yeah, they broke down. How they broke down how long the film is and how many, uh, how long you could, what the maximum amount of film you could stick in the camera, and they broke it down individually like that. So you get these long takes, and the camera does move. Um, obviously, we're talking kind of 50s filmmaking technology, and a lot of the transitions are quite clumsily hidden. 
Um, and I, I think Rope is probably my least favourite Alfred Hitchcock film on the basis that uh, if you take that away from it, it's it's a really hollow exercise and it's really just flat and uninteresting. Yeah, it's the one that I revisit least mm. of that kind of run because that was sort of in the sort of that that run from the mid forties to the sort of the early sixties. You know, there's there's hardly any films in that that are kind of terrible or that aren't worth watching. And that one, sort of after the first time you watch it and you think, okay, yeah, that's that's interesting how they've done that. Uh, it's just it's just distracting on each subsequent one because you just want the story to unfold in this interesting way. And instead, he really emphasises the idea that it's basically a film to play, albeit one done slightly inventively. Um, I mean, that's also something that is uh, has been done a few times. There's quite a few films that have been shot in one take. Russian Ark is the uh, is the one that springs to mind. Um, the one kind of most recently, a kind of a Russian film that was shot in uh, with digital technology allowing it uh, one continuous. I think it's like an 88 or 89 minute take that took six months to rehearse. Um, and as much as you know, that's. A, well, you know, the, the filmmakers would be a world away from saying that's a gimmick, but you know, that's the reason I've heard of that film because someone said, Oh, there's this film you've got to see, it's uh, the shot in one shot. Yeah, and it's really fucking dull. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's impressive. It's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a rare example of a film that's uh, interesting and boring at the same time because you're mm. interested in that, you know, it's, it's not only is it in one take, it's got hundreds of extras and there's this conceit of it's going through this old building on the eve of revolution and you know it's, it's kind of talking about the history of russia but it's so dry and it's so kind of lacking in any sort of dramatic interest that all that is there that is interesting is the, the formal elements of it of how difficult this must have been to put together um it actually brings up something quite interesting i mean i've worked uh, as a filmmaker kind of on and off um i've worked the last kind of 10 or 12 years um and I find sometimes um, when I'm watching a film that I'm not drawn into uh, in a narrative sense or, you know, story-wise or the characters aren't doing anything for me, um, I become really distracted by the technical elements of the film. Um, And recently I watched the film The Raid, um, which is technically an incredibly impressive film. Uh, It's breathtaking sometimes in its dynamism and, you know, how they put it together. But I didn't, I, I don't really go for... Kapsaki films or, you know, films like that, unless it's Showdown in Little Tokyo with uh, Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren, but that's a different story. Um, but that film, kind of, I was bored pretty much instantly by the story and what was going on and, and you know, what was at stake. But technically, I was just like, oh, wow, uh, you know, how did they do that? And then I was just kind of thinking, and I, if you ask me now what the film was about, some guys go into a building, I don't really know the end, or what happened, or, you know, who won out or whatever. But, you know, uh, I did... Uh, uh, kind of marinade on how they did a lot of the shots and and you know how they must have filmed a lot of it and how they must have staged a lot of it and uh, just how they pulled it off really was uh, my major takeaway from that film. Yeah, it, it gets into the area of you know how you appreciate films kind of aesthetically. But I think it is possible there are some films that you can watch and you can appreciate purely on that level but still not considered to be great works of art, but you can appreciate them as great works of craft. Mm. Uh, I think in, in that regard, something like like some of Michael Mann's films fall into that level. There are some Michael Mann films that I think are amazing, stuff like 
know, with heat is, is great, and cider's amazing, collateral's got a lot to recommend it, Manhunter, you know, there are these films where they craft a really good story of really good performances onto this just amazing visual style and, you know, everything else, and, you know, often amazing scores and, and great soundtracks. But then you get something like Public Enemies, where the, the acting is serviceable and, you know, the story is kind of well-worn, but the kind of the formal work in it, like, you know, the, the digital photography and everything is really, really striking and the idea of filming uh, a, a period piece using digital technology and making it look thoroughly kind of modern is interesting to me. Mm. And so you can appreciate it on that level whilst, you know, just kind of sitting there and thinking, I don't give a shit about what happens to John Dillinger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting, like... Um... Because we've talked a lot about um, the digital versus film debate, and that film is notable for being a period film shot digitally, which everyone was talking about when it came out, and they were like, "Well, I'm not sure that's going to fly." So it, that's going to have to be something that you notice or pick up on. Yeah, again, I think that it's it's so kind of obvious and distracting in that film, but I think it's something that even people who aren't like really into filmmaking would pick up on. They would notice this doesn't look like any period film I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah. We've mentioned before um, Mr. Sidney Lumet. He's a, a guy who uh, knew what he was doing. Um, and I've mentioned several times uh, the book he wrote called Making Movies, which is a fantastic resource on making movies. I won't go into it any further. But um, this illustrates my point about the raid. In the, there's a great chapter in um, uh, Making Movies who talks about uh, how much of a challenge it was to make 12 Angry Men, a, a you know, film set in one room, essentially, for, for, the, for the main, um, with 12 men in it, uh, varying degrees of anger. Um, and uh, you don't notice it because it's exceptional filmmaking. That, like, you know, as the film goes on, they uh, bring the ceiling down, they kind of uh, move the cameras to lower angle to kind of make it feel more claustrophobic and to... I mean, technically, from a filmmaking point of view, there is a massive challenge with eye lines and all sorts going on in that film, and that must have been a nightmare. Um, but, you know, how they managed to kind of make the film dynamic and interesting when you are limited uh, is fascinating. And I read the book, and it said all these things he used to do it. And every time I sit down to watch Trial of Man, I think, all right, I'm really going to watch for that. I'm really going to watch for that. And it gets to the end, I'm like, fuck! I didn't even notice it, because it was sucked in by the story, and I was sucked in by the acting, and I was sucked in what was happening. Um, and in that sense, it's a little bit like uh, great filmmaking is like great seasoning in food. Like uh, you uh, don't notice it's there, but you definitely notice when it's not there. Yeah, I, I kind of have the same thing with another Sydney Lumet film uh, that we mentioned for the second time in two podcasts, uh, Network, mm. uh, which is uh, a, a film I love. But you know, one of the things about it that I, I remember reading not long after I first watched it was the idea that each section of the film is done in a slightly different style. Like, it starts off quite naturalistic, and then as it goes on, it gets more kind of expressive. And, you know, to represent the idea that Howard Beale's uh, emotional journey goes from this kind of very raw expression of, of anger and slight madness to this thing that becomes commodified. And each time I want to rewatch it, I keep thinking, oh, I'll keep an eye out for that. And then by the end of it, it's just kind of like, Oh, I didn't notice the differences in style because I was just so interested in the, the story and everything that was unfolding as part of it. And uh, I think that that is 
a sign of of really good filmmaking is you know if you don't notice the filmmaking if you're just kind of really drawn into it uh, in, in terms of you know just pure storytelling not in terms of you know sort of Scorsese-esque kind of bravura where you're meant to notice the stuff that's going on which is its own kind of great skill as well yeah absolutely um is it possible to know too much about a film in terms of its kind of uh troubled uh production history uh i'm looking at you apocalypse now uh i mean is that a film that there is a, a myth making uh kind of aura around that you can literally look at every scene and you'd know something that happened behind the scenes in every scene because it's so well documented it's so well talked about stories so widely known and it's is it possible to separate that on the, on the kind of flip side the same argument is it possible to enjoy the film more knowing just what they went through to make it uh, i think it is i think knowing the production of apocalypse now does make it a richer experience but i do think it's a film that you need to go into the first time and not know that stuff because it's one of those films that is so kind of enveloping and so hypnotic that watching it like three to the knowledge of how it was made really kind of uh, emphasizes its epic quality you know it feels like something that just kind of was almost like hewn into existence you know it, it, or, or just something that came fully forward and it, but that that was how i first watched it, it was not knowing that there was this big troubled production i just knew it was a film that people cited as a masterpiece and i thought i needed to see it and, you know obviously i'd heard things like um you know i love this more napalm in the morning and things like that mm. uh but you know then Later, you know, you watch Hearts of Darkness, you learn about all the things that went into it, and it just becomes more impressive because it's this uh, insane, amazing production. And, you know, that kind of that kind of informs it. In a similar way, I started watching the IFC show Marin based mm-hmm. on the life and podcast of Mark Marin. And that show is very funny, but a large part of the enjoyment of it is kind of trying to figure out who all the people in the show are based on from his real life and how it relates to the WTF podcast, and also recently how the TV show has like affected his real life relationships. You know, it led to a big falling out with his dad and things like that. And so there's a kind of a, a sense that Marin as a show is good, but it becomes a far more interesting and richer experience once you know about everything else that kind of goes around it in a sort of intertextual way. Mm. Um, do you think it's possible to know too much about a film critically, in the sense that? Um, you might know what the film is really about, um, which might distract from the enjoyment of it. Do you have any specific examples? Uh, I I really don't. I'm trying to think of one that, like, uh, I, well, you know how, like, someone will say, "I'll never tell people what a song is written about because you yeah. know it means something to everyone." Are there any examples of films you can think of that are clearly about something? Um, but, you know, if you didn't know that or did know that, does that make a difference to your enjoyment? Uh, I, I can think of a very recent example, the John Favreau film Chef. Right. Which is a film in which John Favreau plays a man who works at a kind of very high-end restaurant and he's very dissatisfied with work and he gets, like, negative reviews of the work he's doing for this big thing and it really kind of forces him to reassess his life. And then he kind of steps away from it and goes back to his sort of more humble beginnings and opens up a food truck and kind of makes food for kind of people again. And 
John Favreau has been very explicit in saying that this is a kind of a big metaphor for his experiences working on like big studio movies and then going back to make a, like a small thing because he felt that he lost his way doing stuff like Cowboys and Aliens and Iron Man 2. And that's perfectly valid for him to work through his feelings that way, but I kind of feel like as soon as you tell people that, that makes the film seem perhaps more important than it is. Mm. Or that you can only watch it and think, oh, so this is like a big metaphor and everything, rather than finding that naturally on on its own. Uh, I feel the idea of, of filmmakers explicitly saying what their film is about in that way uh, deprives the audience of the enjoyment of kind of figuring that out on their own. Yeah, it, it's the same principle of, uh, of kind of knowing about songs. Uh, you know, you kind of use your song as as a first dance at a wedding, and then you find out, yeah, it's actually about like this stalker. Who, well, that's the classic mistake when everyone has that police song, isn't it, for their first dance? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I was uh, going back to the idea of like you know, Escape from Tomorrow, the uh, the idea of films having like really great stories about how they were made and and how it kind of influences it. Uh, I was thinking about other examples of that, and, and an example, you know, a recent example, a very recent example, is that Richard Linklater's Boyhood, mm. which is, you know, a film that uh, take, took him 12 years to make. You know, they filmed a few days at a time over 12 years to chronicle the, the growth of this young boy from the age of 6 to the age of 18. And uh, that's a, a really fascinating story of how it was made, but it's also something that is mentioned in every single review. Mm. And it kind of feels like, like the, the reviews for it have been stellar, and I'm sure it's it's a great film. You know, which Richard Linklater is someone who is capable of real greatness. But you kind of wonder how much the greatness of it are people being overawed by the fact that he did this sort of thing and he committed to spending over a decade of his life making and working on this film, and how and the question of how that process reshaped who he is as a filmmaker. Because if you consider when he started, he was coming off making like tape and waking life, and he hadn't even made before sunset, and he hadn't, you know, had his big crossover hit with School of Rock, and you think that he's a hugely different filmmaker now to where he was back there. Uh, it's hard not to kind of fact that in when you're trying to consider the film as a film. Yeah, it's it's that thing of like whether the the monumental achievement of actually doing it uh, is slightly kind of critically blurs the line your kind of your critical faculties as it were um uh, i don't i've not seen boyhood yet but i mean i think that the film is whilst the scope uh in terms of the time it took is quite large um the achievement is still quite small it's an indie film um i do feel like there's an example i can think of i do feel like the scale of the achievement of making the Lord of the Rings trilogy achieve uh, kind of overshadows how good that film actually the, those films actually are. I think, uh, and I think that that's maybe a part of um, knowing too much about films is is easier now because we have DVDs with extras and commentaries, and you can have a you know the filmmaker sat in your living room with you, essentially telling you what they were thinking, what was happening, and then you can watch a three hour documentary about each individual element and. Those Lord of the Rings films are kind of notorious for that. Um, there's, you know, you could pour over hours and hours of extras to find out how every single uh, thing was made, right down to the last kind of button on someone's costume. Um, now, that film was rewarded hugely at the 
at the Oscars, uh, the third film of that trilogy, and that's actually the worst film out of the three. Um, and I think that that um, kind of reception for that film is all based on the fact that, like, it was such an achievement in terms of, you know, shooting three three-hour films back-to-back in, the, you know, essentially completely off the studio lot with, you know, old-school techniques mixed with cutting-edge technology. Um, and that, I think, completely overshadowed the critical response to it, perhaps not the audience response. Yeah, I think there was definitely a sense that the giving it the best picture director and uh, you know, screenplay for the third one was in recognition of the overall kind of trilogy rather than the third one being the best. Mm. Because really, you know, I think you probably, if you were to choose which of those ones deserve those awards more, it'd probably be the first one. Mm-hmm. But I think then if they, if they gave it to the first one, then they'd be like, well, we have to give it to the other two as well. So maybe the Academy would just kind of waiting for their moment to kind of reward them rather than taking into account the, the overall quality. It's not that the third Lord of the Rings film is terrible, but, you know, it is, it is the kind of the messiest and the weakest of the three overall. Um, like looking at things on a different scale, I think you can kind of see that in things like uh, two films from the early 90s, Clerks and El Mariachi, and to a lesser extent, um, uh, uh, Slacker, another Richard Linklater film, Mm-hmm. In that they're films that have these really scrappy, you know, stories of how they were produced. And, you know, certainly, uh, Clerks and El Mariachi are, are their their whole sort of legacy is built into the fact that their creators uh, either allowed themselves to be experimented on, as Robert Rodriguez did, or to you know basically max out their credit cards and risk completely destroying themselves financially, as Kevin Smith did on Clerks. Mm-hmm. And whilst both of those films, I think, kind of stand up as works of art in their own right. Um, I think a large part of their reputation is built on the fact that they have these really scrappy beginnings. You know, I mean, Slacker uh, has less kind of insane stories behind it, but the idea that it's this film that you know, Richard later basically made with his friends going around uh, Austin and just kind of like filming it, constructing the film in this stream of consciousness way that you know really kind of set up that idea idea of sort of DIY independent filmmaking in the nineties or set a precedent for the early films to later films. Uh, it all kind of obscures the the film itself. Um, yeah, and conversely, that we talk about those films that you know have scrappy production histories and are made for a handful of cash. Um, we've talked about it several times before. How hard it is, seemingly how hard it is for critics to separate uh, budgets from films. Um, mm. And we talked about it on our end of year show last year. The Lone Ranger uh, was a film that was purely talked about in terms of how it went over budget rather than it being a kind of quite peculiar blockbuster. Um, same thing with like, what I mean, if you ask someone, what do you know about the film Cleopatra or Heaven's Gate? Um, they may never have seen it, but they know that, you know, they are kind of wildly over budget, massive flops. Um, and that has to inform how they feel about it going in. That, that has often been cited in certainly the case of Heaven Gate as a reason for its failure in that its production was very heavily kind of written about in terms of, you know, the extravagance and the, the budget overruns and, you know, stories of Michael Cimino, like, having the whole sets taken down and rebuilt, you know, like a foot to the left or whatever because they weren't exactly right for his camera and stuff. 
and that really is that kind of level of hubris that definitely seemed to inform how people responded to it at the time and you know still kind of covers its legacy to a, to a great extent even now mm. yeah it, i suppose it's it's um today in, in today's age ed um where like you know there is so much social media and there's so much you know so many blogs and websites and idiots doing podcasts that it's kind of difficult to escape things like that there's difficult for you to escape you know a film's going to be troubled in, you know early on everyone knew going into john carter that it was a troubled production and you know people were cynical about it before you know they'd even seen a frame of the film because it had been so well documented and we hadn't even had the film yet and that also, I think that also hurts the, you know, the negative reviews to it as well, because people will be like, oh, he's dismissing John Carter because of the, the, the production problems, as opposed to, like, you know, you and I aren't particular fans of that film. Mm. Uh, and I'd like to think that, you know, that was because I went in and I wasn't that entertained by it, and it wasn't because the, uh, you know, there were all these bad stories about it going over budget and changing the name and, you know, changing the release dates and things like that, but... Uh, you know, I think to people outside of that, it just seems like people are being like, oh man, these guys wasted so much money. And that may not factor into it at all. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, do you think then that what we're saying is it's it's best to know nothing about a film or it's best to know just enough about a film? Because, I mean, I kind of wonder like, if I'd have even seen uh, Escape from Tomorrow without knowing its uh, production history. I think it it's, depends on a film-by-film film basis. I think in the case of Escape from Tomorrow and Boyhood to an extent, that, that story of how they were made is so intrinsic to the stories themselves mm. that I think it, it helps the film in terms of getting an audience and it also is an indelible part of their, uh, of their appeal. But I think in the case of things like, uh, you know, a, a film like, I Heart Huckabees, which is a film that became infamous because of uh, David O'Russell's uh, rant against Louis Tomlin. Uh, I think that that is something that's separate from the actual film itself. And I think it, it just harms what is a very interesting film to have it become associated with kind of a moment of where the director just completely loses it. Or, you know, uh, something like uh, the like the Boondock Saints, where it's a terrible film, but knowing about how it's produced actually makes it more interesting. Mm. So I think there are cases where, you know, the reverse is true because, you know, you get something like Overnight or uh, Lost in the Mansion, or, you know, about a film that didn't happen. You get great films made about uh, films that are either terrible or which can never actually come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I watched Overnight first, uh, the film about how the Boondock Saints... Uh, was made, and I was just like, dude, I've got to see Boondock Saints. And then I watched Boondock Saints, and I was like, dude, I wish I hadn't seen Boondock Saints. Because <laughs> I think that is the most obnoxious film I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, I watched Boondock Saints first, and I right. kind of had that reaction. Because I, I, I was showing it by someone at uni who was super into it, and thought right. it was really great, and I was watching it, it's like, Christ, you know, Willem Dafoe's fun in a stupid way. But there's not much else, really, to recommend this film. But then you, you you know discover that there's a whole documentary about it and it becomes uh, fascinating in an American movie kind of weirdo trying to make it kind of way. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what conclusions have we drawn from, from this episode, Ed? Uh, it's good to know some things but not others. Brilliant. That's, the, <laughs> uh, that's our motto and we're sticking to it. Um, so, yeah. no, I, I do think that it's it's good to kind of find out things about a film, but I think it's, in most cases it's best to be as, as fresh as possible. And I think it's generally better for filmmakers to keep stuff under wraps like in the case of boyhood i think most people didn't know that film existed until this year and if i remember reading about it like six or seven years ago that it was a thing but it was like it was just kind of oh that sounds interesting and then mm. suddenly it's come out and it's this kind of unknown quantity that people don't really know about or uh something like you know uh, paul Thomas anderson's the master which was a film that was kind of shrouded in secrecy uh, you know, people only kind of knew bits and pieces about it before it came out. Uh, I think things like that can be really joyous things to you know when you actually get to watch them. Um, I think that that is more up to the studio than the fans because there is a case of the filmmakers and the studio keeping things under wraps. And I think that a large amount of the problem with uh, people knowing too much about film is that the studio allows details to leak. Mm. or doesn't keep things as secret as they could have. Yeah, there weren't no uh, Slash Film set visits on uh, The Master, was there? Not as far as I'm aware, unless uh, they had to force them to go through that uh, conditioning process, just walking from wall to wall before they could get in. Yeah, and then then followed by an article, which is like 112 things I learned from the set of The Master. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) um, um, so yeah, that's that um, uh, issue solved. yeah, what other things will we solve next, Ed? Who knows? I don't know, but I think uh, if people want to find out, they should subscribe to, uh, to us on iTunes uh, and leave us a nice review. And that way you'll be able to keep up to date with what we're, we're talking about. Until next time, listeners, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>